We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Best of luck to Team Canada and their game against Croatia on Sunday. Now get out there, make us proud, and win us that Budweiser. Here's Scott Thompson. You seem to be distracted, son. It's not about the Budweiser. And are you a legal drinking uh, drinking age? I just want to know that. Uh, you know, should I tell them the funny story, Will, about getting that through editing? Uh, um, so anyway, you, you know, a lot of you, uh, con- oh, by the way, hey, how you doing? I'm Scott. Uh, Will, that's him there. Uh, and, and a lot comment on my son's intros and such and, and where they come and how they, how, how they get to where they are. Boy, is this ever getting me out of talking about the Emergencies Act? So uh, basically what happens is I write them, and then he records them, usually the night before, and we go from there. And uh, twice, and and, and I think once before this, so there's three times in total since we started doing this at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, two and a half, over two and a half years ago, uh, he's done them all. But there's been a couple of times he goes, no. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing like that. What do you mean? Why? What are you talking about? And I can't remember what the first one was about. But the first one uh, this week was on Monday. And I can't remember what the intro was. But my line at the end was, uh, still wobbling from the tequila. Here's Scott Thompson. Goes, oh, I'm not going to say that. Why? Because that's illegal, Dad. You can't be on the air drunk. <laughs> okay, fine. Took the line out. Off we went. So then uh, I wrote the one in after this one that ran today was supposed to run a day or two ago after the team uh, played, Team Canada played. And, of course, the story relating to that Budweiser was the official uh, brewer of the uh, World Cup. And and then they weren't allowed to sell any beer. So there's this giant warehouse filled with Budweiser. And Budweiser said Budweiser Budweiser has said it is going to whoever wins the World Cup. So hence that. So uh, I wrote that for the th- no, Dad. I'm I'm not I'm not saying that. So we just did a congratulatory one. So then uh, I I read it to Will, Will Weber, who's on with us now, and he started laughing. I said, Screw that, son. You read that. Will said it was okay, and he's younger than me, but older than you. So now you know the rest of the story. I am uh, a political pawn. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I used Will. When Will's against me, you don't you don't hear his name. But when he's for me, man, he's pushed to the front of the line. Uh, so anyway, that's the story around the intro, and I'm sorry I had to bore you with that. All right. Uh, everybody's been introduced, so we don't have to do that. Uh, we're watching this today, and oh, my goodness. Um, here's what happened right at the beginning. And, and you know, I've been watching this for six weeks on and off, and uh, and because it's my job, <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't seen all of it, but I'm trying to cover it as much as I can and be aware of uh, of what is happening. And honestly, I used this analogy earlier. It is like watching, it is like watching uh, the prime minister untangle fishing nets. It's just oh, it's tedious. It's frustrating. Uh, and around and around and around we go. I want to play you a clip. I'm not sure if you've heard it today. But this one is of the actual Emergency Act inquiry, 
where um, the presenter, the person organizing it all, is announcing the final guest, the final um, uh, testimony today from the Prime Minister of the United, or from the Prime Minister of Canada, rather, and he's introduced, and then there's a massive gap because he's late. <laughs> Here, here's what happened. Shantona Chaudhry for the commission. Our next and final witness is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Prime Minister? Prime Minister? Um, Prime Minister? Maybe we'll take a few minutes. Uh, I'm not sure where the process is, a bit anticlimactic. Um, So, should we take five minutes? I think we'll take five minutes then and see, and you can come and get me when it uh, it is. Thank you. The commission is in recess for five minutes. The commission is in recess for five minutes. Go ahead. It's it's just a bit of a false start. Okay, so uh, there's the commissioner saying, you know, wake me when uh, it's time. And uh, then as he leaves the bench, uh, the prime minister strolls into the room and uh, off we go. I don't know about you, um, but I'm really thinking that, um, and no, I'll just speak for myself, (laughs) but I'm certainly growing tired. And you may be feeling the same about me, Uh, growing tired of listening uh, being frustrated, uh, uh, being bored, being, uh, you know, taken around a mulberry bush, as my mother used to say, watching the prime minister continually untangle his fishing nets. Because it seems whenever the prime minister gets asked any sort of questions, it's like watching someone untangle fishing nets. And it just keeps going on and going on and going on and going on and going on. And the rest of us are just trying to get fish to feed our families. And it's, it's, it, it's so, so, so tedious. And that's the idea. Just keep boring us to tears, saying the same kind of stuff over and over again. Well, we suffer from insecurity at our nation's capital. We have insecurity when it comes to medicine. We have insecurity when it comes to energy. We have insecurity had when it came to vaccine. Just do the gig. Somebody stand up and take responsibility for all of this. And at least he's mentioning during his testimony today that, and I think the liberals are are, are really, have been really, t-bone by this that not everybody on the planet in the country likes what they're doing and not everybody who doesn't like what they're doing is an enemy and has to be put down or arrested or whatever we're just disagreeing but he talks a lot of the extreme right while going to the extreme left 
And anytime you go to one extreme, you're going to bring in, you're going to bring out the other, whether left or right. You go to an extreme, you're going to see the opposite. Go to the opposite, you'll go back to the other direction. And it's just around and around and around and around and around and around and around we go. Like watching someone sitting on a shore for hours untangling fishing nets and never really getting there. Too busy chasing goals that can't be reached. Saving planets instead of Canadians. We're all there. We all want to do the best. We all want to help. But is there some leadership somewhere in this country? As opposed to somebody just being a wordsmith for hours and hours and hours and hours. All Canadians aren't looking for whether this needed. I think most Canadians agree. Something needed to be done to clean up the mess because clearly it wasn't being done. Whether that's the EA Act or not, and I'm sure brighter minds than than mine will figure that all out. But really what Canadians are just looking for is some leadership. Someone who's taking charge about something we all care about. Whether it's inflation, putting food on your table, educating your kids, or or having a good job. We have become an insecure nation. And it was once extremely proud. Ask our veterans. So again, oh, are we going to get this net untangled? Nope, not going to do it. Not going to happen. But hopefully, hopefully, we'll learn something from all of this. Twitter poll question of the day, CHML. Will you be taking advantage of Black Friday deals today? And the uh, 75% of you? No. Uh, feel free to jump in there. We'd love to hear from you and what your thoughts are. And uh, that'll run right through till 6 o'clock at night. You know, we've been uh, hearing a lot about retail and what it's going to look like this Black uh, Friday moving on, uh, considering where we've been, inflation, pandemic and such. And some uh, retailers have said it's not all about lower price. It's about offering other stuff, other value. Uh, have our habits changed? Do we want to go back to the store? Are we looking for those extra values or just simply the old rock bottom price? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, uh, retail analyst, author of Retail Before, During and After COVID-19 and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show again. So first of all, how does this Black Friday uh, compare to others? It's pretty different. Um, You know, as per your poll you mentioned during the intro, I think people have sort of seen, you know, Black Friday is almost another, just another shopping day. I mean, I mean, Black Friday is really about, you know, the week leading up to it or the week before that. And it's also about shopping online. It's less about sort of getting up early, getting a coffee and going to the store. You know, I I was out at Best Buy this morning and uh, they moved their sale to 8 a.m. from 6 a.m. And I went to Walmart and there were six people lined up. So it's a very different Black Friday now. Uh, do you, um, obviously the economy and pandemic where we are, but is, is this time for uh, merchants to rethink what Black Friday was and what they've exploited it to become? At the end of the day, should it go back to where it was? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think I think it's probably going to stay because it's got a great name, you know, and it has great brand awareness. But you're right; it's really less about this now. And um, I think you know, there's there's going to be a lot of different folks who are going to re- you know do do well and do do not so well during this ban- pandemic and during the uh, sorry Black Friday. Um, retailers that really 
sort of are able to offer significant discounts might do okay. But if you're just offering nominal discounts, like 20 or 30% off, I think you're going to be shocked at how little you sell. Um, so, so I think Black Friday overall, it's kind of become a little bit outdated, but you know, the, the marketing cachet of the name is, is probably here to stay. Uh, as you said, margins are so slim anyway. How much deep discounting can you do on the one day? But you also brought up another uh, interesting point uh, post-pandemic or even what we've learned going through the pandemic, shopping online. Have the actual habits of of uh, customers change? I mean, do we have to go in and physically grab it now? Or is it still the spirit of going in there and doing it, as you said? How have the habits changed? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think the habits have changed a lot. I mean, we all kind of got used to doing a lot more online during the pandemic. You know, for a while, their online uh, e-commerce doubled. So, you know what, we're all pretty comfortable now with just sitting back and buying from the uh, from our computers. And uh, and I think retailers know that, too, because even if you look at Best Buy stuff today, you know, it really the whole sale started last night. So, you know, a lot of people bought a lot of things last night online. And other things started earlier in the week, right? You know, so so I, I think online has really, e-commerce has really, you know, put a dent in that sort of historic traffic frenzy at the store. And for a lot of stuff, people just don't want to get out there. Now, having said that, there is a bit of a renaissance with brick and mortar. You know, you look at the COVID era, we didn't do a lot of brick and mortar. Well, people are coming back. They want to get out there. So you're probably, you're going to see, you know, a bit of a, a resurgence of that, but but certainly a lot of business going to be done online too. We're hearing a lot about, hey, we're not going to go chasing price. It's not all about the price you said. If you even give a 10 or 20% discount, people may not even blink. So are there other and how? what other value-added uh, incentives are merchants or retailers giving, not necessarily or over and above a low price? Yeah, um, you, you might be able to offer something around payment terms, so do not pay if it's a big item do not pay for six months or do not pay for three months. That's something that might uh, offer some help too. And retailers also use some different incentives instead of just sort of price. They might say, you know, um, buy a hundred bucks and get, you know, $20 of loyalty points or, you know, buy three, get three free. So they're going to, they're going to try to do whatever they can to offer value uh, above and beyond just pricing. Maybe they have a bonus kit or, or a bonus pack or something, but um, yeah, retailers will always scramble to to try to add as much value as they can without necessarily impacting price. So after this weekend, Bruce, what can we expect uh, in retail in the stores from here till Christmas? Well, we're going to have Cyber Monday on uh, Monday, but those those usually start Sunday night, and uh, it's going to basically be you know full throttle for retailers and for trying to win over sales from now right till the end. And consumers, you know, they might take a bit of a break after sort of cyber week and then really sort of say, hey, you know, what do I have left to get and then start to look around. But they're going to be very conscious about pricing now. So, you know, they're going to be looking for distressed merchandise, maybe things that didn't sell as well as they thought, as retailers thought on Black Friday that go back down in price. Um, You know, some people are going to wait for boxing, boxing week. Um, and there's also, you know, they call it Super Saturday or whatever, but it's the Saturday before Christmas, before the holiday, the 25th. That's when some retailers sort of, uh, you know, sort of lower prices too to try to generate some traffic. So that's what I think is going to happen. Do you see Cyber Monday uh, eclipsing um, uh, Black Friday? I mean, that very much eclipsed Boxing Day, it seems. So is, is this just ready? Is this just the next thing to happen? It could be. I mean, uh, you know, and what I think we have to measure this almost from like a week before Black Friday 
and a week after Cyber Monday and sort of mix it all together like a soup and say, you know, is this soup more than last year? And that's kind of how we have to look at it because you're right, this this time period has eclipsed, you know, the Black Friday Cyber Monday event has eclipsed boxing, boxing week, boxing day. So I think but we have but I think honestly we have to measure it as sort of a two week period. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst, author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19 on what the holiday season, shopping season, has now become. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Happy shopping. Yeah, you too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. um, The um, Emergency Act inquiry uh, continues, (laughs) and... um, it's uh, it's tedious at best uh, listening to it all. I'm I'm sort of, it's fascinating, but it's kind of like watching somebody untangle a series of fishing nets, and uh, that's where we are. And this is the final day. A uh, summary of all of this coming out in the new year around February, and I guess then we will know. But it's interesting so far where we are, and I, I'm not sure the story has changed too much from that initial week or two. But to talk more, Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and is with us now. Wayne, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. I am, and I hope you are too, sir. So your thoughts, yes, thanks so much. Your thoughts on where this all started, the beginning, the middle, we're seeing the end here. It doesn't look like there's going to be any new real revelations as this does come to an end. What are your thoughts as we've gone through this process? What, are you, what, have you, what stands out for you? What have you taken from it? Well, I think the first thing we need to start with is to recognize that, in fact, such an inquiry was absolutely necessary because whenever government takes steps to limit the civil liberties of their citizens, that needs to be reviewed in the full light of day as soon as possible thereafter. So fundamentally, there's a good reason for this inquiry. As to the the question, did it shed much light on things? I agree with you. I'm not sure we know anything different or more now than we did watching it unfold in front of our screens. I remember in the first few days of this um, uh, uh, coming out and saying it appears at this point that although the definition of, and, and the threshold, the criteria needed to meet the calling of the Emergencies Act was not met, it appears that it was needed to clean up the mess afterwards, whether that was a unifying of leadership, which I understand came out today was not the case, but it was certainly needed to clean up the mess as opposed to uh, quelling uh, or concerned about national security. Your thoughts? Well, you know, certainly the the national security angle is is is, is hard to wrap your head around. Uh, what we did have a, a case here of a not insignificant number of citizens who decided that the various measures governments had undertaken during the course of the pandemic uh, did them sufficiently egregious harm that they felt their only remedy was to turn out in the streets, whether it's in Coots, Alberta, Ottawa, Canada, Ottawa, Ontario, or Windsor, Ontario, and let governments know that they had gone too far. To me, what I'm hearing now is more about um, 
buck passing. There just seemed to be a lack of leadership through all of this. Um, and I'm not sure Canadians are convinced if it was to happen tomorrow that it would be handled much differently. Uh, will we learn from this? I think many people were surprised at the beginning of this when the police chief of Ottawa said uh, we thought they'd come and go for some reason the intelligence wasn't making it to his desk or he didn't uh, he didn't acknowledge it and thought it would be over in a week but there was no plan B are you convinced that coming out of this will at least figure that out because again today I'm listening to well we didn't know if it was the province's jurisdiction the federal governments or the cities or and it's just my goodness um, during a time like this I think people are looking for <laughs> a main guy to stand up and take control and we didn't see that well you know one of the things I think we we have to accept is that each time one of these national emergencies, let me call it that, unfolds, it's always unique in its own way. What happened around Ottawa is very different than what happened in Quebec in 1970. Each had their own origin stories, each had their own dynamics. And so I'm not sure we can ever expect to acquire some generalizable sense of, here's what we need to do whenever something like this or anything that we might call an emergency happens again. Uh, what was, you know, clear is that I think for for many people this was almost a, a form of catharsis. Actually, the whole the whole exercise that I just want to get out of my system. My my, you know, I I, I hate this mm. pandemic. I, I'm frustrated by this pandemic. I've been cooped up by this pandemic. I'm tired because of this pandemic, and. I want to get rid of all that baggage. And I think there there, there was a, certainly an element of that in, in terms of some of the folks who appeared before the committee. How relevant do you think the CSIS director's uh, testimony was when he said there wasn't enough to meet the clear definition of national security to call the Emergencies Act, but recommended it anyway? Was that a turning point? Well, I, 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 I think what he might have been better advised to do was to make clear he couldn't speak to the, to the legality of the, of the declaration of the act. That would be up to uh, the attorney general and, and, and lawyers uh, uh, employed by the crown. Uh, so venturing into that, I, I, I'm not sure what he had on his mind, uh, but generally speaking, security directors are meant to tell you about the, the nature of, of, the, of the challenges you face and the dangers you face, not to provide you legal advice on whether or not such dangers represent a, a sufficient threshold for invoking an act of legislation. So he shouldn't have recommended that? Because, well, again, that pushes you into a gray area, which... Well, he should now... stay in his lane. I mean, you know, there, 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 there are... I, did, I mean, the, I, I think, you know, the case made by the Civil Liberties Association has been quite good at, at, at the inquiry in terms of making, trying to clarify the legal basis for doing or not doing, invoking or not invoking this legislation. And uh, that's helpful. And, 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 you know, I might be convinced by it or not. You may be convinced by what the Civil Liberties Association had to say or not. But, you know, that's, I think, a, a very important question to get our head around. 
whether you know the fact that that CSIS uh, offered a, an effect uh, the opinion of a lawyer rather than uh, it is I think probably something he wouldn't do a second time. How do you think Canadians are digesting this, Wayne? Are they paying attention? Are they just trying to survive? Or how, I, I think most Canadians aren't paying attention. I, I, I think that sense of, uh, you know, God, I wish this would end. It isn't just, wasn't just shared by those who went out and protested and took part in this. It's shared by, I think, all Canadians. And, and I think for a lot of, for, for reasons, very good reasons, where people are kind of, as they say, I'm done with it. Let's move on. I want to focus on something else. And, you know, that's behavior that's pretty consistent. We've seen across the board from Canadians in 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 the aftermath of, of the uh, uh, COVID epidemic. I mean, we've seen that in other areas of, of government where, you know, parties have just gone on and gotten themselves reelected by not by talking about the past, but by saying, let's not even talk about the past. Let's focus on the future, and I think that's what most Canadians want to do. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. Wayne, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, it's the weekend. A lot of people might head out and about. And we remember during the pandemic, it was all about supporting hospitality and such. Uh, but we've also seen prices go up, which is part of inflation, just like everything else. Nothing new there. Uh, but what about asking more for tips? We have talked about this uh, several times and, you know, started seeing tips of 30% showing up on that little machine, uh, guilting you into tipping more. Uh, where is the line? And uh, an interesting piece uh, uh, from IG Private Wealth Management, Jay Llewellyn is with us right now, senior financial consultant, often hear him uh, on weekends. Uh, Saturday, Planning Your Financial Future with Don Fox. And uh, interesting aspect, this is something that people are starting to notice. Jay, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the time. Scott, thanks for having me. So this is something that people are now talking about more and more, isn't it? Why, why do you think this has become an issue? Yeah, you know what it is? It's like a presumptive close, I guess, we use in the sales business or they used to use in the sales business. Like when you get to that machine like you were talking about and all of a sudden it's it's 20%, 25% or, or 30% or other. And you feel obligated to give one of those three that are there, the 20, the 25 or the or the 30. So, you know, reading through this article, it was we provided it to all our clients and uh, through IG Wealth Management, but it was actually from the Wall Street Journal. And they were mentioning the fact that you should be tipping uh, based on what you think is uh, based on their service, based on what you what you got from the experience. So tipping to everyone is not necessary, but tipping um, to people that feel that they made your life easier or made your life better for, for doing certain th- things, that's who you should be tipping. Uh, how did we get on this sort of uh, dripping tip? Uh, and by that, I mean increasing. It just I remember it was when it was 10%. And again, it's yeah. based on 10% <laughs> of the bill. So as the prices go up, then obviously the tip would go up. Now we're seeing the rate of tip going up. How do you justify that? 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you can justify it. I think you have to go into the the experience knowing what you want to tip. So if you're going to a restaurant and you think if this if the service like have a game plan in place, if the service is going to be adequate and, and you know maybe not sub little subpar, maybe your tip is 10%. And then if it's it's good service, it's 15%. And then if it's excellent service, then you give you give the 20%. But have a game plan going in. Don't don't go in there blind thinking that, oh, and get all nervous when the machine comes out and just press one of the buttons. And, and end up tipping way more than you thought. If you have a game plan in place and have, you know, an expectation of level of service, depending on what restaurant or what, what, what venue you're going to definitely have a game plan in place. And then you won't, won't be caught off guard. Uh, yeah, that you don't want to be the lowest one tipping. Look, I was yeah. only, oh my goodness, this guy's tipping 50. Um, what about, what do you tip on Jay? Do you tip on the total bill? Do you tip on just the, uh, the subtotal before tax? What do you tip on? Yeah, I guess the the rule of thumb is tip on before tax. Um, but the, keep in mind or remember that just because let's say you go to a restaurant and you get some bad service. Or the wait, the waiter or waitress isn't great. You have to think about the other people that are uh, behind the scenes. So you've got services, right. one thing for sure, but then you've got the kitchen staff, the food, uh, the chef. Um, you've got people that are cleaning the restaurant, people that are clearing the tables. You've got the bar staff that are making drinks for you if you if you happen to order drinks. So you have to think about that all those levels of service along the way, and you can't necessarily just tip based on what the waiter or waitress is doing. Um, definitely, definitely, that's the front line. But um, keep in mind. In that there's other people being affected. Those those servers are sharing those tips with the rest of rest of the crew at, at the restaurant or the, or the hotel, and you want to make sure you're taking care of everyone. Do customers know that? Is that something restaurants should put forth? You know, when you tip, not only do you tip this person, but that not because many question where it goes. The yeah, house yeah, might even sure. take a portion of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's another thing, right? I, I was reading through this article and and a couple art- other articles just before we got on the air here, and it was there are some institutions that actually take a, a portion of tips. So there's uh, in Niagara Falls, the, a lot of the the businesses down there have a presumptive tip already built into the into the bill. So uh, some of the institutions are taking a slice of a slice of the tip as well. That's a good point too. You want to make sure that when you're reviewing your bill that the tip isn't already included. So that's, that's one way you get caught too. double tipping is if there's a, a 10% or 15% percent tip built into the bill and especially this time of year when we have big groups a lot of restaurants are right. um, making the, the tips included in the bill um, you know you want to make sure that you're not double tipping so uh, whether the house is getting a portion of it or not I don't know if that's a question you can ask the server um, but definitely definitely be aware of of the tip that's built into a bill for sure Jay Llewellyn with us, Senior Financial Consultant, Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. Listen to Planning Your Financial Future on Saturday mornings. Jay, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Scott, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. All right. Uh, the Prime Minister last up for the Emergencies Act inquiry. He's been on the stand all day. And uh, I'm not sure we're learning too much more today than what we didn't already know, perhaps a little bit more in detail. Um, uh, but still, I, I don't think much has changed from uh, many weeks into this. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow at the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, and a former CSIS analyst, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. All good, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing today, and, and what stands out for you with the Prime Minister's testimony today? 
Well, I agree with your opening statement, Scott. Not a lot has been learned by why should we be surprised, right? This is the head of the government that enacted the or brought in the Emergencies Act. And what do you expect him to say? Oh, my bad. We made a mistake. Of course, we were going to hear that. One thing really caught me, surprised me and shocked me was that the prime minister seemed to suggest that CSIS didn't have the tools to do domestic terrorism. Uh, that's categorically false. Yeah. We've had them since 1984, which makes you wonder if if the prime minister understands what CSIS does. He also said he wasn't briefed on Chinese interference, which again surprises me and is probably not true either. Uh, what does it mean, Scott, when a prime minister doesn't understand what his security services does? What it suggests to me, and I've been saying this for years, is that we have a woefully inadequate intelligence culture in this country. And when CSIS tells you things it knows, um, if you don't like the message, you ignore it, which is what the National Security Intelligence Advisor said. I don't like your assessment. I want another one. So, yeah, um, the question I have now, Scott, is how much did this inquiry cost and why were we spending that kind of money in the first place? You know, it, it just amazes me. And, and I had this conversation with you right at the beginning that I'm just completely surprised that Ottawa as a city uh, doesn't have a plan B if a protest goes awry or a terrorist attack or anything of that nature. But I'm listening to this testimony today and I'm still, still hearing squabbles about <laughs> jurisdiction. It's like, my God, are we arguing over and trying to bring in, uh, the provinces or, or the province or, you know, whether it's Ottawa's jurisdiction or the RCMPs or whoever's? I can't believe we're having this discussion still, even especially after we saw, um, uh, you know, the killing at the at the war memorial yeah. I, i'm I surprised bring, that I, we're still talking about jurisdiction i was going to bring that up you know in the aftermath of michael Zahapi bow's killing of nathan cirillo then his storming of the center block before he was killed there was a, a you know a, a post facto uh, uh inquiries wrong word uh, examination of what went well what didn't go well and people pointed out that jurisdiction was a problem so wellington street which is right in front of parliament is basically the ottawa police service the grounds of parliament were the rcmp the actual buildings themselves were senate and parliamentary police or or security whatever and you would have thought as you so you know aptly put it we would have gotten this one right and yet still as you said in, in january and february we had dueling jurisdictions we had uh, disagreements amongst police forces and okay i can get that you know there's some pride involved in terms of who wants to do what but yeah uh, for national capital uh, for a critical sector of our society not to have its cards in order when it comes to potential threats and i stress potential threats because the, the convoy wasn't really a threat as far as i'm concerned uh it makes me wonder what we've been doing for the past eight years uh, we were talking earlier on in the week about the testimony of the director of CSIS and saying that although the criteria had not been met, the threshold had not been met uh, for the Emergencies Act from a national security standpoint, he still recommended it to uh, the prime minister. I had a prof on earlier today that said, I don't think he would do that again. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? And, and has that been a pivotal point in this? Oh, it's been huge. Uh, I, I know I, I firsthand knowledge that it's had a tremendous effect on the organization itself in terms of morale. Uh, I agree that it's not his call to make. He's the director of CSIS. He's not the director of the Emergencies Act. Sure, he can give his advice on national security, but he gave that advice, Scott. He said, we do We did our due diligence. We looked under the rocks. We looked at the, the protesters and we concluded categorically this did not meet the threshold of a threat to national security. Would he do it again? Um, well, my first question is why he did it in the first place, uh, how he kind of went against his own organization's assessment and recommended that the, the act be invoked. 
I don't know. You know, Scott, an awful lot I've learned over the past couple of weeks is I don't, no longer know what to expect anymore in terms of what intelligence services are supposed to do in this country. And I worked in the business for 32 years. Um, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes here that I don't want to speculate on, or I, I think is going on. And yeah, I've got more questions than answers at this point. I'm sorry I can't give you a better answer than that. It's It seems that this, again, especially today, I'm seeing more off-ramps and excuses rather than solutions. Yeah. And, you know, so the, the question, I think there's rumors that the convoy or a version thereof may return in February. This sort of the mark the first year anniversary. I got to hope that people have, uh, you know, something in, in mind, uh, not to allow the trucks into downtown or remove them immediately or whatever. But, yeah, it looks like it's uh, amateur hour at the improv to me in some ways. And uh, I sincerely hope that, that that's not the case and that people have given this some serious thought. We don't want the disruption that occurred in Ottawa in January and February. And so you would hope that they have plans in place to mitigate it before it takes root in the first place. What do you think the buzz is around Ottawa on all of this and the six weeks that we've seen? Um, disappointment. I think um, people are just kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, what else do you expect from a government? that doesn't seem to get intelligence, doesn't seem to get national security and public safety. A lot of people covering their behinds, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We haven't got any real answers as to why the act was. We've got a bunch of conjecture, really bizarre statements that, well, because people were afraid we needed the emergency act, because the Americans were you know, uh, expressing concern about the, our economy, we should invoke the act. I don't know, Scott. I haven't seen anything to date. And yeah, I have a bit of a bias. But I've seen nothing to date, which makes me change my mind in that the act should have been invoked. And I, I think there's probably a lot of conversations going on downtown. And I, I'm retired, so I'm not privy to them, where people are asking the same questions as what the heck is going on in the prime minister's office? What's going on in the privy council office? And what's going on at the highest levels of government writ large? Bill Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, sir. We'll talk soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We heard it during the municipal election and uh, we're hearing it again afterwards. Uh, it's 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 bizarre. And hopefully we don't have this discussion on the extremes. But uh, obviously there's a housing issue in Canada, in Ontario, for sure. And uh, not enough, not enough sub, uh, supply, not enough product. Lots of demand, no supply. And um, I'm not sure everybody wants to jump into a high-rise and do what some anti-sprawl uh, experts are, are, are suggesting. There's got to be a happy medium somewhere. And that being said, anti-sprawl activists are set to protest outside conservative MPP Donna Skelly's office on Sunday. To talk more about all of this, Donna Skelly here, Flamborough Glanbrook MPP, and with us now. Donna, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well. So far, so good. Uh, people are accusing you. Doug Ford said he would never bite into the green belt, and it looks like that's what he's doing. What are your comments on that? How do you address that? Well, we are doing what we're doing because we realize we have a, a crisis right now, and it is a, an affordable housing crisis and a housing crisis for, that young people, families can afford, and they're two different things. Some are really subsidized social housing, and the other is just giving people, you know, regardless of your age and your um your current situation, an opportunity to realize the dream of home ownership. We are going to be removing uh, 9,000 acres of 
Greenbelt. Sorry, 7,000, but we're replacing it with 9,000. We're actually going to be growing the Greenbelt by 2,000 acres. So while people are objecting to the fact that we are going to be um, taking some land out of the Greenbelt, at the end of the day, we will actually have a larger footprint. Uh, So what, cutting at it at one end and then adding to the other end? Putting in sensitive uh, lands that are considered environmentally sensitive will be added to the Greenbelt. The land that we are, for example, in the Hamilton area that is being removed, abuts, um, it's, it's on, the, on the edge of the Greenbelt, so it's right above or right abutting development, current development. It's land that is either uh, already serviced or can be serviced very uh, quickly and easily. There is also a parcel of land that the city of Hamilton itself, in a letter to the province in September of 21, asked that it be removed. So not all of the land uh, the city is objecting to. They actually requested that some one parcel of it come out of the uh, Greenbelt and that they would be able, able to uh, use it for building homes. So, yes, I know people are saying, you know, it's, you're opening up the Greenbelt, but the reality is we are growing the Greenbelt. We're taking out 7,000 acres and, and we are actually going to be putting back 9,000. Um, and and Scott, the, the, the green belt for people who don't understand what the green belt is. It's, it's, I was it's just about to ask you, let's, let's yeah. decipher between what the green belt is, white belt. Let's go through the terminology. Yeah. Well, well, some municipalities use white belt, most don't, but the green belt is, is a, a swath of land that stretches over 2 million acres. And we are proposing that we're going to be taking out less than half a percent, so 0.37%, so that we can build more homes in areas where we know people want to live, the GTHA. However, we will be putting more land into the Greenbelt. We have to build homes, and not, as you mentioned in the, in the opening, not everybody wants to live in a tower. They don't want to live in a high rise. And people should not have to be ashamed of of wanting to own a home with a little bit of a backyard and a driveway or a garage to to park their vehicle. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a dream I was able to realize and I, I know you have and I we live in Canada. People in Canada should be able to choose the community they want to live in and the type of housing that they want to live in. And it should be affordable. But if we don't get shovels in the ground quickly, and by the way, the land that's coming out, developers have to have realized significant progress by 2025 or the land is put back into the greenbelt. So we want these homes built. We want them built quickly. We are also encouraging intensification, excuse me, infill within municipalities along transit routes, et cetera, but that there isn't enough land within the current boundaries to accommodate the projected growth. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Once you get started, you'll just keep nibbling away. Well, I don't think so. I think with the plans that we have put in place, we will be able to reach our targets. They're realistic. Unfortunately, the plan that the city presented to the province wasn't realistic. It didn't accommodate the projected growth using the city's own numbers and not even including the projected growth of the 
increase in immigrants that we expect since the announcement by the federal government of bringing in 500 Canadians, new Canadians each year. By the way, most of those people will be living in the GTHA. The numbers and the plan that the city of Hamilton put forward simply wouldn't accommodate the projected growth. Their own staff uh, rejected it. They went ahead. Our, our minister said, look, we're not going to just take no for an answer. We as a province have a responsibility to ensure that people have a place to live. And we have to ensure that the tools are put in place so that developers, builders can get going and build the homes that we need. We haven't uh, built homes since the 60s. And it's not just a problem here in, in, in Ontario. I was reading an article in The Atlantic recently about what's happening south of the border, California, all along the, um, the eastern coast as well. They have a massive shortage of homes, and that's why it's so expensive to buy a home. Um, do people have a, um, a, a distorted view of what these neighborhoods look like? Um, I'm in a relatively new neighborhood. Uh, it's got big houses. It's got small houses. It's got semis. It's got townhouses. Uh, there's also uh, mid-level um, uh, condo con- or apartment type of things, offices, uh, uh, retail at the bottom. Uh, and it's all joined by parkland and bike paths and all that sort of stuff. Is that not set by government? I mean, people are just thinking, oh, it's like ni- the 1950s in Beaver Cleaver, and we're just building these rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of never-ending houses. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? Absolutely, and, and I'm glad you raised that, because that's the secondary plan that the municipalities should be very active in working with developers, and developers have a responsibility to build homes and communities that we want. It isn't the 50s and 60s. We don't live the same way. I wouldn't. I would say it's not even the 2018 because prior to COVID, uh, I'm in Toronto four days a week, and I've seen a drop in the number of people in the downtown core and the number of people who are living and working in Toronto. So COVID uh, did do one thing. It gave us an opportunity to work from home, and people are taking advantage of that. And so the communities that will and can be built over the next 10 years have to reflect the way we live today. Some people want their parents living with them. I see a lot more extended families. Uh, some people do want to live in high rises, fourplexes, turning a garage into a rental property so that you can afford to buy a home. We, we, all of these, these um, new needs and, and habits and, and ways we live have to be taken into consideration when we plan it both by the municipality and by the developer. Donna Skelly with us, Flamborough Glambrook MPP, talking about the housing situation in Ontario and the resistance to it. Donna, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I thought it was time to bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. Uh, we talked to him uh, over the course of the global pandemic at a time it was almost daily uh, and haven't chatted for a while. Thought it might be uh, time to bring him on and just uh, tell us where we are right now when it comes to COVID, flu, RSV. Uh, we all know there's a lot of sick people right now in uh, in Ontario and Canada. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us now. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Good to be back on the show. So your thoughts of where we are now, because it's it's sort of like uh, people are, are getting a bit anxious again, uh, but it's not necessarily COVID, it's flu and, and, and other viruses and such. Your thoughts of where we are right now? 
I think the biggest concern we have right now is around teenagers and children because we're seeing a shortage of medication for children that Canada's trying to address right now. But also we're seeing a rise in numbers of ICU and hospital case admissions in pediatric hospitals specifically with an increased burnout of healthcare workers. So, you know, if I were to give a summary of where we are right now, I would say that, you know, coronavirus is still around. COVID-19 is definitely still around, but we seem to have managed to figure out a way to live with it. However, our biggest concern now is on two fronts, children and healthcare workers and them being drained from being burnout. Uh, lots of debate again about masking. Your thoughts? Well, I think masking, you know, we're, we're seeing an increase people wearing them and an increased strength of messages around the need to wear them. We heard from Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's top doctor, urging people to wear masks again. My advice is simple with masks. I think if you are in a crowded area, if you're taking the public transport, if you're around people with close proximity, do wear the mask because not only will it protect you against COVID-19, but it'll also protect you against the flu, which we know that this year, many more people are getting infected with the flu vaccine and more than 3,000 people a year die uh, of the flu in Canada. We, it's one of the top leading causes of death in Canada and so definitely if anybody has gotten the flu lately, they know it's a horrible thing to have. You're in bed for quite a few days so the mask will protect you to a certain extent from the flu and other types of viruses in addition to COVID-19. What about flu shots and your booster for covid if you haven't gotten your flu shot, I would highly recommend you go out and get it because I tell you that getting the flu is not fun this time of the year. I have a few friends who've gotten the flu and it's quite terrible this year around. So the strain seems to be stronger in terms of symptoms and the way people are reacting to it. We, a lot of us haven't experienced the flu in a couple of years because we've been in lockdowns and we've been wearing masks. So we might have forgotten how terrible the flu could be. And so if you haven't gotten the flu vaccine, I urge everybody to definitely get it. Where are we with COVID, doctor? Um, we remember uh, at the beginning of all this, it was ver uh, variant after variant, uh, the latest being Omicron, which seemed to be uh, certainly highly contagious, but not as dangerous. Where are we with that? Do we, should we, is there anything in the future we should be concerned with? Well, right now, case numbers around 4 million in Canada with death numbers a bit increasing. Hospitalization has decreased over time and so has ICU for the general population in terms of COVID-19. Is it still around? Yes. Are variants still emerging? Absolutely. Uh, will it always be around? Yes, we've always said that. COVID-19 is going to be very hard to eliminate and we're going to see a rise in pandemics of such nature in the future. However, where what, what is different is our ability to adapt to them. One, we as a population have figured out a way to live with the virus, whether that's, you know, hybrid living work situation where we work from home and in offices, so we're able to address both. We're also seeing workplace settings being more understanding of people when they fall ill. And for the majority of the population that have gotten their vaccines, when they are infected with COVID-19, they're able to resolve their symptoms. The big thing we're trying to study now is the long-term impact of COVID-19 because we're really worried about whether there will be long-term health complications from people who have contracted COVID-19. What are, your, what are your thoughts on the medication shortages that we're experiencing? Because we don't really seem to see it in other parts of the world. Uh, we hear anecdotally people from the States sending stuff up to their friends or family uh, in Canada or such. What are your thoughts? How, how, how did we get here? Is this similar to a vaccine we're just not producing enough? 
it's not simply that my heart goes out to all the parents listening to us today because this is heartbreaking for parents with small yeah. kids because I can only imagine the anxiety they're having of possibly having one of their kids get sick and not being able to access this medication. We got here because of, I would say, you know, we weren't aware of how rise, the increased rise in numbers of uh, RSV cases is going to happen and the rise in the flu vaccine. So, uh, sorry, flu cases. So, Two things we didn't anticipate well is the rising flu and respiratory RSVP cases. Both placed a big strain on healthcare systems, specifically around the supply of medication. We were able to produce some in Canada. So usually we produce about 300,000 units this time of the year. Canada has announced it's producing 1.1 million, uh, which is a huge increase from what we produced before. And Canada has been able to secure some of this medication from abroad. I think one of the things that we fall uh, victim to is that there's language barriers. And what I mean by that is that, you know, our, our medications are distributed in Canada, have to have both languages uh, labeled on them. We also have very strict regulations into what kind of medicines make its way into Canada. So just being able to get them from abroad is not as easy as maybe some other countries but i think this was a wake-up lesson uh, in terms of stockpiling and understanding the needs of the population ahead of a big cases like this what's your message to canadians who may be concerned about where we are my heart goes out to you. I, I can only imagine if you have children, how difficult that must be. I would say my advice to you is that, you know, do recommend wearing face masks, get the flu vaccine if you can, protect your kids from the possibility of getting infected and, you know, keep a close eye on them during this critical time. The This winter season is a tricky one because that's when we see the big rise in infections uh, and that the supply is coming. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not all negative news. We know today right. they've announced that Canada has been able to secure almost 500,000, I think was the number that will be distributed throughout the country. So we are going to see an increase in the number of medications available. The more tricky part is the ICUs and the, and the emergency rooms for pediatric patients and for children. And I think the trick there is to really try to make sure that your kids uh, as much as possible uh, keep wearing a face mask and staying at home and sick. Dr. Maud Khalid with us, health policy expert, talking about where we are uh, in Canada with the global uh, pandemic, flu and RSV. We'll chat soon, doctor. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Emergencies Act inquiry winding up today. The the, uh, prime minister, the uh, final special guest for the whole show and such. Um, I I don't know how much, I guess more detail is what we learned today. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, it it really appears that, um, you know, this was about cleaning up the mess after three weeks uh, rather than necessarily something that was a national threat or threat to national security. Uh, Is that enough to meet the threshold? Well, I guess it depends on which academic or who you ask. Um, um, and the fallout, uh, as we process all of this, will come in February when we hear the final report. Kyle Benning is with us, network digital broadcast journalist for Global News, has been following this uh, through the duration and is with us now. Kyle, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, doing well. Hope you are too, Scott. Is that it? Is that over? It's done? What happens now? Well, we're done hearing evidence. We're done hearing testimony. Six weeks have come and gone, and we've seen dozens upon dozens of witnesses who have something to add about what took place in Ottawa, what took place in Coots, what took place in Emerson, what took place in Surrey, what took place basically across the country in late January, early February, come to an end. And now we sit and wait for the commissioner's report. Uh, Many anticipating the Prime Minister's appearance today. Did we learn anything new today about what has been going on? What stood out for you? 
there were a few things that stood out to me. One of the things that he said earlier this morning was that the Emergencies Act was considered as soon as after the first weekend of the convoy sort of hunkering into the capital. Um, and I think the way he said it was, it was always an option, but it wasn't closely considered until later. But the fact that he sort of maybe was thinking about it that early, maybe spoke to how different this protest was compared to all the other protests that take place in the Capitol, maybe just what was happening uh, in Parliament and some of the intel he was getting. Uh, some of those things was what he heard at his table as well. All of his advisors is what he said, pretty much all of his advisors without too much dissent about not invoking the act. So there seemed like there was pretty uniform mind uh, way of thinking when it comes to this government and the uh, privy council. So basically all of the public servants thinking, hey, this is the right decision. Uh, and, and even the prime minister himself thinking, hey, what if I don't? do it and will there be any consequences if i don't invoke the act so a a few things there but nothing absolutely ground shaking it appears he solidified uh what others have said in pointing fingers towards the ottawa uh, police services chief uh and that he wasn't happy there was a plan b um or that at least one was not coming together how much of that do you think contributed into calling this act I think it played a pretty big factor because that was one thing that we heard from him was that a plan was shown to him, but in his mind, he didn't see it as a plan because that plan basically had an idea of this lasting another month potentially. So I think after three weeks, there was people at the top of the government who just wanted to see this come to an end and dealing with it for another number of weeks was out of the question. So um, whether that fall, I think that primarily falls at the feet of Chief Slowly, but in terms of the police services board or how they asked and called for resources, whether there was some things lost in translation there. The Prime Minister himself even said today, um, it was brought up a, a call with the mayor, Jim Watson, about Jim Watson and asking for a certain number of officers and the Ottawa police services asking for a different number. So just things lost in translation, lost in communication. And, and I think that lack of a, a plan B from, from the Ottawa police service is, is going to be a massive factor in what the commissioner puts in his report. Um, obviously, after three weeks, um, people had pretty much had enough of this and, and everyone was looking for an out, whether it's the EA Emergency Act or, or policing or what have you. Um, is there much emphasis, do you think, or will much emphasis be put on what happened before that, how we got to this? Because even today we heard fighting over jurisdictions like is this the Ottawa Police Service? Is it RCMP? Is it this? Is it that? Um, and, you know, you, I go back to uh, the killing of Corporal Nathan Cirillo at uh, the War Memorial and the storming of the House of Commons. I mean, I, I'm surprised there isn't some sort of terrorist plan B in place. Uh, are we confident that there is now or do you think that's what we're going to be talking about? I think that will be something that we could look into when it comes to the recommendations. And another thing that was brought up that kind of leads into this as well, Scott, Um when Justin Trudeau was on his phone call with the premiers um, in the lead up to calling the Emergencies Act, which is one of the steps he has to do before invoking the act, um, he talked about whether these measures that they were going to use from the Emergencies Act could be used without having to invoke the act. So are we going to have to look at different ways of sort of ramping up actions that need to take place when it comes to quote unquote, national security, whether you believe this is a national security threat or not, or whether government believes it is. So will we need to find ways 
of not necessarily bypassing the political realm and what happens in the House of Commons, but is there something that needs to take place that when there is a threat to the economy, a threat to national security, a threat to what have you, can things be ramped up um, a little bit more quickly rather than having to wait three weeks in what was essentially an occupation of the, the capital city? Yeah, I'm still amazed that it, it got to that point. Uh, Kyle Benning with us, Network Digital Broadcast Journalist, Global News. Kyle, you can breathe now. Relax for a bit. Thanks so much. Great reporting. Thank you, Scott. All right. For six weeks, uh, we've been agonizing watching the uh, Emergencies Act inquiry. Okay, you have it. I'm doing it for you. I'm taking the pain. And uh, wrapped up today with the Prime Minister as the final witness. Not sure we learned anything more than we didn't already know. Uh, let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and is with us now. Duff, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Hope you are doing well as well. Your thoughts, Duff, on on what you saw today and what you heard from the Prime Minister. Is there anything that stands out uh, from this testimony for you today? Um, just mainly that the Prime Minister continues to really make a uh, political case that uh, as other government witnesses have, they then try to align without really talking about the details with the actual legal requirements of calling a national emergency. And that's the problem they have. And I think as a result, uh, the commissioner is going to, in the end, conclude that the legal requirements were not met because you can say all that you want about how the act helped, but um, it has to be necessary. And uh, I ha- it was interesting. I was talking to a, a columnist earlier on that said in the week that said, you know, at the end of the day, there was a problem, and then this was brought in to solve it. So that's a good thing, and that's how Canadians will view this. Do you agree with that, Duff? That is the political argument. And yes, if it hadn't worked, uh, then obviously. more Canadians would disagree with it. Um, But it it did work. And uh, at least in Ottawa, it wasn't needed in Alberta because the RCMP implemented a plan actually on the day the Emergency Act was uh, invoked. And then the next day, without using any Emergency Act powers, cleared that protest. It wasn't needed in Windsor. Uh, because that protest was actually cleared before the Emergencies Act was declared. But it did clear away the blockades in Ottawa, and the uh, the powers were used there. Uh, and, and it did work to do that. So, um, But, you know, the, the legal requirement is that there be a national emergency. And it exceeds the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. So and, it appears that... Sorry, go ahead. And that legal requirement has not been met by any of the evidence or arguments that uh, the Trudeau uh, government has put forward. So it appears that the consensus is uh, that the, the threshold was not met for uh, national security threat, but was recommended by the CSIS uh, director to help clean up the mess. Will that sit well with Canadians? Is that good enough? We've we've stopped the problem. It doesn't matter if this, that, or the other, or, or rights were trampled, or this or that. We solved the problem. Are, are they are they more concerned about what happened after three weeks as opposed to how the heck it even got to that point? 
Well, no, I think certainly people in Ottawa, uh, if you're talking about Canadians or Canadians, (laughs) people in Ottawa, I think, are really disappointed with the Ottawa police force and are still questioning whether that police force has learned its lesson. Uh, People across the country, those who agreed with the protests will not agree with any finding that says it was the Emergencies Act was needed. And those who disagreed with the protests, which are the majority, large majority, uh, will agree that the Emergency Act was needed. So that's the whole political sphere. Uh, But I still think the commissioner will look at it and say, look, this is a legal inquiry. It's not a political inquiry. I am looking at a law. The law says you have to have a national emergency that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians and cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. And police incompetence, which, you know, there, a lot of the testimony today from the Prime Minister was I keep kept hearing there was a plan, but I never saw a detailed plan. Uh, but the plan came together quite soon, right after the Emergency Act was declared and uh, was going to likely come together anyway. So it helped. Maybe things would have happened a couple of days sooner. But it... Um, I mean, that hinges on what the word effectively is. Does it have to happen because the prime minister wants to happen today? And therefore, if it doesn't, it's ineffective. Or uh, a couple of days later is still effective. So, but also the big question is national emergency. Is the blockade in the front of Parliament Hill a national emergency, given that the blockades at the borders were cleared? And again, I think the commissioner will say, no, you know, this is, allows you to suspend the rights of Canadians and freedoms of Canadians. And you have to meet the legal requirements to declare it. You can't just make a political argument that you you want to have those powers. So, Duff, what happens if February rolls around? I think it's going to be a mixed bag, so everybody will get everybody will be happy, and both sides will be able to say whatever they want. But say we come to the end of Feb- or to February, and the commissioner says, "Nope, it was not required. Nope, you did not meet the legal threshold." Then what? Well, it just shows that the government is going to have to, in the future, if such a situation happens. Uh, it has to be on a national. I mean, the, the commissioner will give reasons. I'm, I think he'll say it wasn't on a, it wasn't a national emergency. Uh, it didn't seriously endanger the lives, health, or safety of Canadians at a national level, or uh, pres- didn't involve at all preserving the security and territorial integrity of Canada. Um, it wasn't like there was an invasion or anything from outside the country. And uh, that you're going to have to really push the police to cooperate and do things if you want something done faster. And that he'll find the police forces were ridiculous in not cooperating. And also, I think that Ontario, which had declared its own emergency provincially, that the Ontario government did not get the OPP uh, on the case in Ottawa uh, quickly enough. The OPP is going to say and has said, well, We couldn't do it because Ottawa police were resistant. And again, we've talked about it before. The police were not cooperating and the Ottawa police chief in particular, there's lots of evidence, was resisting cooperating and trying to run it as a little fiefdom himself, even though it involved the Hmm. parliamentary precinct, which actually Parliament Hill itself is not under the Ottawa police 
authority, and and so he should have yes. been more cooperative, and things could have moved faster, uh, and and they uh, could have even under the Ontario's emergency act ordered t- tow trucks to move in and tow the trucks away. Uh, we remember here in Hamilton, the federal national, they didn't need the federal emergency; they already had the provincial emergency declared. We here in Hamilton obviously uh, greatly remember the passing, the death, the murder of Corporal Nathan Cirillo at the War Memorial. Then, of course, the person storms uh, the House of Commons and eventually uh, is shot. Are you surprised that there isn't a plan if there is some sort of attack, whether it be domestic terrorism, whether it be a convoy, whether it be somebody like the Nathan Cirillo incident. Are you surprised? I'm not even convinced that, that if something was like this was to happen tomorrow, that we'd have a situation, a solution because again, today the prime minister is still talking about jurisdictions and whose responsibility it was to do what. Yeah. Well, if you're talking about someone driving up to uh Parliament Hill, you can't do that anymore. No, but even beyond that, I mean, obviously, you know, a blockade is not going to stop this. If that's what someone has in mind, do you think there's a plan in place now, Duff? No, they're still sorting that out. Uh, and, and it's going to take a legal change to yeah. say that this, because the prime minister's office is and the Senate are right across the street from the main center block of Parliament Hill, where the Peace Tower is, that we have to have one police force police this whole area and, yeah. and take it away from Ontario jurisdiction or put it into OPP jurisdiction or Ottawa police. I mean, one, one police force has to police that whole area where all the buildings are and all the streets that connect them. It just doesn't make sense otherwise uh, to have to have people cooperate who might you know, be territorial and trying to protect a little fiefdom or want to be the hero in some situations so they won't cooperate because they want to be in charge. It just doesn't make sense when you have a situation that could develop very rapidly, as you say, of, of, of someone rushing Parliament Hill with a gun. So, Jeff Conagher yeah, with us. Sorry, go ahead. And it has to be cleared up with an, uh, with the change to the law. Here's hoping that at least we get a plan B out of all of this. Duff Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, it's Friday, Scott. We are all well. Um, there you go. Six weeks. Six weeks. We have uh, gone through uh, the Inqu- Emergencies Act inquiry. At the end of the day, what is your con- conclusion? What do you think from what you've heard so far? Obviously, the Prime Minister finishing up uh, testimony today. What did you learn out of the, all of this? My conclusion is going to be that whatever the conclusion, the official conclusion is, we will have spent an awful lot of money. And all of those who thought the prime minister and the government were correct in the first place will still believe that they were correct. And all of those who didn't will still believe they weren't. And I would be shocked if one Canadian's opinion changes. And so uh, as I've been listening to all this and following all this and realizing that, you know, we are deeply dug in on our political views, I just hope and, and I thought this many times over the last six weeks. I really hope that our Red Hill Creek inquiry doesn't end up doing the exact same thing where we spend millions Mm. of dollars and then at the end we get a report that says kind of what we already thought and the people who agree that City Hall screwed up 
will say, see, I told you, no, I don't care what the report says. And those yeah. who think that it wasn't City Hall's fault, but it was someone else, will say, you know, like, these things, Scott, I, I really do question. I, I think we need to do them. But in a time when politically we are so embedded into our own side, I don't really know that they provide the kind of value that they once might have. I mean, uh, sorry to keep going on here, but this week was the anniversary of JFK's assassination. Yep. All right. Imagine if the Warren report was being carried out in 2022 with the political situation the way it was. Hmm. And it, it would not matter what pos- if you if you were a democrat you would have an opinion if you were a republican you'd have an opinion and nothing that could have possibly been said or testified to would have possibly changed your mind and you would have spent all this time and all this money and got us exactly to the point where you or i or anyone else started so i i, I feel i mean maybe it's cynical maybe it's negative maybe it's pessimistic i just don't see that this moves us anywhere uh, I, I think what I'm surprised at, and my position has been the same since the beginning of all of this, was that there was not a plan B in place, that if their nation's capital gets attacked, there isn't a plan. I mean, even today, the prime minister is squabbling about jurisdiction and who was supposed to be where and do what. And the front lawn of this is that category, but the main street is that category. Um, and, and I remember back to the loss of Corporal Nathan Cirillo when he was shot and then the House of Commons was stormed. And uh, and obviously the killer eventually taken out. But you would think after that there would be some sort of plan put yes. in place. So if this happens, we've got a plan. And I'm not even convinced that we've got one after this. But Scott, okay, so the Nathan Cirillo situation was unquestionably clearly there was live fire going on. People were being shot. It was it was pretty clear to anybody what was happening. Yeah, good With point. this, we're not even able to clarify whether this was an attack or a blockade or a protest or a we can't even agree on what we're going to call this thing like no one would argue that the Cirillo thing was not an attack this we can't even agree on what we want to deem this and so how do you then make plans for something when no one can agree on what it is Good point. And the discussion continues on the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read Scott in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, as always. Have a great weekend. You as well, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott, this is Alistair from the East End. I don't know about you, I was just waiting for when the Prime Minister was going to pull out the monkeys from this three-ring circus. Jeez. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.